We're going to continue our series entitled Choosing to Live by Faith. Choosing. And faith is indeed a choice. Faith is not faith in itself. Come on, Dave, have some faith and join in. Faith is a response to something that God has called us to do. It is not something to encourage your buddy to join in what you're already doing. Have some faith. Faith is, is, is directed on a particular source. Who is it I'm having faith in? What is it that I'm trusting? And we're talking about faith here, where God calls us to do something, to say something, to go someplace. And even though it doesn't make any sense to us, even though we don't know how it all is going to end or how people will respond, by faith, we do it. God told a guy named Abraham, hey, leave everybody you know, everything that's familiar. Yeah, even that nice place you like to eat. And go to a place that I'm not going to tell you about yet. But just go. Just up and leave. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, you got to go all AAA and get the maps, you know, and make sure you have the insurance and make sure the relatives are at home that you can stay with them along the way. That make any sense. We don't like to live that way. By faith is unnatural. And yet it is exactly what honors God and is what changes our lives. It is how God directs us. He gives us his word. And the road to life is to do it. Choosing to live by faith. I'll tell you, friends, you don't need 50 ways to leave anyone just spend a little more time with someone else. Just don't get excited about the things you used to be excited about. Pick up new hobbies. Less time, less energy, less talk. And those are the ways you leave a lover. And we're talking about here, my friends, today because we're going to look at one more unusual person of faith. These are people who obeyed God, even though he called them to do incredible things. And again, faith looks a lot like obedience. I hear it, and I do it, even though it might not sound normal, safe, or even good for me by my definitions. God we're going to look at today is Hosea. So I want to encourage you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to the prophet Hosea. Hosea and chapter 1. We're going to look at his call. Now, you may remember remember last week, we talked about a guy named Jeremiah and how God called him to a life in which the promise he gave is, is I'm going to deliver you, which uh, assumes the fact that he's going to need deliverance from something. And it seems that whatever the message is God gave Jeremiah to speak, there were people out there to silence the messenger. No one wanted to hear what God was telling him to do. And it wasn't about being popular, it was being about being faithful. And you recall that Jeremiah ministered to the southern kingdom of Judah as this rebellious nation 
was about to move into exile. God had made a covenant with them, a Palestinian covenant. It was part of the Mosaic law that if you obey my law, if you practice these truths, if you live them out, I will bring the rains. You will live long and prosper. Your children will not die as infants, but they will live to an old age. Your crops will be busting every day. You're going to need a bigger barn. But if you are not, God's love also was illustrated in his discipline. I will do whatever it takes to get you back. And if you read the Old Testament, it's just this picture over and over again. The book of Judges is an excellent illustration. In chapter 2 in the book of Judges, we read about this thing called a sin cycle. And I'll tell you, it sounds awfully familiar as you read through the Bible and maybe even in our own lives. God has brought us to a good place and we rejoice and we thank Him and we kind of get comfortable and see what else is going on. Less worship, less prayer time, less even thoughts toward God looking for that next opportunity. Off you are doing something that just took a step away, and suddenly you're miles from God. God raises up something in your life to bring you back, to get your attention, something hard, something that's a law, something that's painful, whatever it is that God needs to get your attention to bring you back. And that's what happened. He'd raise up the Philistines to come and attack Israel, and they would be subject to the Philistines and their cruelty, and they would cry out to God, God deliver us, and God would hear them. Suddenly their mind is on God, the God who put them in a good place, knowing the reason they were in this bad place was themselves. And God would raise up a judge, and this judge would lead them to great deliverance, and they would be free to go back and play in the same mud puddle they were in before over and over again, and God would raise up another judge when they'd have enough, over and over again. It's a history of Israel. And I'll tell you, friends, that's where we find ourselves in the book of Hosea, just like Jeremiah, preaching his guts out, repent. You know, friends, you read through the Old Testament, you read about the, the, the history of the nation of Israel, and you see that the, it's one pock mark after another, one dark day, one embarrassing moment after another of suffering. And the fault was not God's, it was their own. It was the choices they were making, not to trust Him, but to follow their own lusts, their own desires, whatever they thought would truly make them happy, <clears throat> buying more, going, the, experiencing new things, worshiping new gods. And it was a shame, but it was their own fault. And God would do always, whenever there was sin, whatever was darkness, God would raise someone up. And this tells us two things about God. That God would raise up a guy like Jeremiah and Hosea, ask them to do the unthinkable. It tells us two things about God. A, that God loves us. When God brings someone up to your nose and saying, hey, pal, what are you doing? Will you please stop and consider what you're doing with this life? It tells us that God loves us. I mean, God doesn't just say, go, go. 
Go live your life. Live in the mud puddle and the filth and the disgust. Go ahead and experience the emptiness and, and dissatisfaction of that kind of life. God loves us just like a parent. They warn and they plead. They choose life, choose truth, choose God. So it tells us that God loves them. You know what else it tells us? God is a God of mercy. God takes sin very, very, very seriously. Knows the end. Has told them the end. And so here's Hosea. And in the same way that Jeremiah ministered right up into the exile to the Babylonians, Hosea ministers to the northern kingdom of Israel. And they too are on the cusp of exile. So jump in with me. And we're going to see how God decides to use this prophet in a way that will be profitable to the nation of Israel. Take a look with me, if you will. Verse 1, Hosea chapter 1. We have a similar introduction like Jeremiah did. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And notice this note here, the kings of Judah. And you say, hey, what's he doing there? You know, the northern kingdom, God sent only two prophets. There were 20 kings in the northern kingdom throughout its history and 20 kings in the southern kingdom. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there was one dynasty. It was from the family of David. You have this dynasty. Sure, it starts with Saul. But once it gets to David, it is all of his descendants. And ultimately, that descendant will ultimately end up with Jesus, who is the son of David, who is the king of kings. But in the northern kingdom, there's one dynasty after another. You know, there's, there's murder, there's just all kinds of horrible things. People, you know, just lying, one another, just, just horrible. You know, Ahab and Jezebel were in the northern kingdom. They were wicked, nasty people. Jeroboam, who set up golden calves in Bath, the northern part of the northern kingdom, and in the southern kingdom. And there he says, worship God there. How ironic. We got some golden calves, and God will be honored if you worship him there. Did they learn nothing from Exodus chapter 20 and so on? My friends, it's sad. It's a dark place. These guys are not here to lead them into growth. I mean, the high point of Israel's history was under Solomon, the richest, uh, you know, David being the most godly king, and every king is compared to David. But the nation of Israel was never at its strongest point than under Solomon. And here we have his call, this call about the kings. Because the only point of, of the only right to reign really is in southern, the southern kingdom, the dynasty of David. You know, that is a promise that God made in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Made a Davidic covenant is what it's called. Remember David? He wanted to build a house for God. He wanted to build a temple. You know, and he called in the prophet Nathan. He says, oh, this is my plan. What do you think? He says, hey, put your hand to it. It'll be great. Before Nathan walks out the door, Lord says, hey, go back and tell him this. You're not going to build me a house. 
but I'm going to build you a house. And he's talking about a dynasty that leads all the way to the king of kings. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's a great chapter talking about this promise ultimately referring to Jesus. So, reigning kings at the time, putting it in a historical perspective. And then after talking about the reigning kings, he talks about the days. In the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. And we'd, nobody knows the kings. And then honestly, the thing that only matters is we're moving to the last kings in the northern kingdom. And God will raise up the Assyrian army. And they will lay siege against Samaria. And they will take the people of the northern kingdom captive for 70 years, my friends. And so this is where we find ourselves. The context of Hosea's calling here. And so we notice here in verse 2 the Lord's message. We see Hosea's call in verse 1. Now let's get to it. The Lord's message in chapter two, uh, 1 and verse 2. Find yourself a wife is the first instruction that God has for Hosea. Now that seems odd, doesn't it? I mean, he didn't tell that to Jeremiah. Hey, get yourself, you know, start a family. Get some solid stuff in you. But he does this for Hosea, and we're going to find out why in just a moment. Notice in verse 2, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go tell it, take yourself a wife of whoredom. Yeah, for real. And it shows up three times here. Look at this. The Lord spoke to Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom. This is an adulterous woman. This is an unfaithful woman. This is not the kind of gal you want your son to grow up and marry. This is a woman who is wanton, who will not stay home, who will find the next lover. This woman who has nothing in common with the word faithfulness. And God says, this is the woman I want you to marry. Because remember, he is a prophet of God, which means he has a message from God. And this message will not be one of words, certainly not at first. The message will be, why in the world would God have Hosea marry a woman of unfaithfulness? It is because at that moment, Hosea will be an illustration of God and his wife, the nation of Israel. They are marked by unfaithfulness to God. It is a sad, dark book. It is, it is hard to read and hard to understand why God would do that. But, you know, this isn't the most unusual thing necessarily that God has asked a prophet to do. You know, as a matter of fact, um, uh, Isaiah was called to walk around naked for three years and not in his living room. It was part of the prophecy of what God was going to do to this nation, that they would be laid waste and naked and, and without and completely in poverty. I mean, Ezekiel, God had told Ezekiel to build this little model of the, the walls around a city and then to lay on his left side for like 400 days. He says, you know, bring some food with you. And he had very little because God was going to take it all away. 
I mean, the, the people were supposed to walk by and say, what's going on here? This is weird. And that would have an opportunity. It's, it's not much different than, than wearing that Greek shirt that, that has the gospel in Greek. People see it and they go, what's up with that? You know, hey, what does that say? And it gives you an opportunity to present the love of God, the, the, the damage of sin, and the, the promise of forgiveness and a relationship with God. It was all about setting people up to say, hey, what's going on? And they would hear the message of God illustrated. So here's Hosea, and there's his call. Remember, we're talking about unusual people of faith. I wonder if you were a young man or woman, and God had asked you, you see that guy over there? You know, the one that's going from one girl to the next girl to the next girl? I want you to spend some time with him. I want you to enter into a relationship with him. And your response internally might be something sophisticated like, Ick! Would you do it? Would you have some questions for God? Would you need a contract of assuring of good things to happen? Friends, if you've already signed up to be a follower of God, what it is he's called you to do may make no sense to anyone, even yourself. But if God has called you to do it, then do it. Do it. Isaiah, naked? Like, what do you mean naked? You mean like without a shirt on? How about no socks? Maybe I won't wear any socks. I mean, the hot sand, it'll be really uncomfortable. Naked. Are these unusual things? That, of course, God is not calling you to walk around the city or the community here naked, okay? I mean, there's some people that hear weird things on Sunday morning that were never said, so I need to clarify some of these things. But here's the Lord's message. Find yourself a wife. A special wife, a wife who is going to be unfaithful to you. Now, why? I mean, why would God choose to do this? This seems so ridiculous and absurd. We want to explain it away. And yet, can you think of a better illustration than this circumstance for God to communicate how his people have broken his heart? And maybe at some points in your life you've experienced the broken heart with someone you've been faithful to and loved and cared for and that they have just walked away. And they, and they say, well, it's not you. It's just, you know, I want some other things. It's the nation of Israel. I mean, God had birthed this nation. I mean, before they existed, God made promises to this nation. He brought them out of slavery. He brought them victoriously to this new land. And he had nothing but good for them. And they walked away. I wonder, do we see any reflections of that in our own life? Of the promises God has made for us? The sacrifices that God has made for us? I wonder if there's anything in our own life that makes us think, we're a lot like these guys. I mean, you know, at first, we did a lot of Bible stuff, and we went to a lot of Bible things, and, and we couldn't get enough about it, and we thought about it all day, and we couldn't wait to get off work so we could go to the Bible thing. And somewhere along the line, 
we stopped. We thought it was just for a day or a time, and then it was two, and then it was all of them. And the sad part is, we didn't do anything about it. We thought, well, it's not that bad, I guess. I mean, I know some of it, and I'm still going to that one thing. And we made excuses. Hmm. Think of the heart of God in that. Hmm. What's on display here? In the same day, way that we're going to watch Hosea's heartbreak with this unfaithful wife. But God has a message. Don't miss it. Well, the message continues. Find yourself a wife. Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Why? For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. It's not really an adjective you want associated with your name, but if the practice fits, there it is. Here's the second part of the message. He says, and have some kids. You know, with this this wife who will be unfaithful to you, well, Lord, that's not good. You see, the kids, their, their hearts will be broke. They won't know which way to go, and they're adults. They'll have this horrible complex going on. They won't know what to do or understand relationships, and boom. So we went and took Gomer. Wow, what? So apparently, Hosea heard what God told him to do, and he did it. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, there's a lot of commentary, uh, commentators that, that, that write, and they have a difficult time with this. They try, well, maybe this is all metaphorical, you know. He didn't really have a wife, you know. And yet the Scripture lays it out as that's exactly what happened. And some have said, well, maybe, uh, maybe she was not a, a wife of whoredom to begin with. She was a good, nice little Israelite girl. But that's not what God told him to do. Well, maybe these weren't his kids, you know. Maybe they were, but maybe they were, maybe they were the kids of others. Well, we see here that uh, when took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she bore him a son. Seems to indicate here that this son is his Maybe you're a bit questionable on the others. And what are you going to call this dear son? Verse 4, and the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. It's like naming your little boy Armageddon. Oh, what a sweet little boy. What's his name? Armageddon. I mean, how about we just call him hell? Whoa, what do you mean by that? Lake of fire, perhaps. I mean, you don't even have to go that far, you know. This, 
This is a reference to something that had happened that God had called Jehu to go against uh, Ahab and uh, Jezebel and, and to uh, fulfill a prophecy that was made on them, how they would be killed and, and how Jezebel would be trampled, and she was by horses, so much so that it was hard to identify if it was actually her. It's part of the prophecy, part of the living out, and actually that she would be, her remains would be eaten by dogs. I mean, God was very angry with the, the, the way that Jeroboam and, uh, I'm sorry, Ahab and Jezebel, the way they led Israel into idolatry. They were wicked, wicked, nasty people. They were the people encouraging them. Go ahead, try it once. You'll like it. Just once, you know. You don't have to do it twice. And let's remind ourselves, it is infinitely more easy to say no the first time than the second time. Once you have broken down the barrier of no, it's not right, you'll see lots of footsteps going back and forth, my friends. But Jehu did not only do what God told him, he started slaughtering everyone related to him and everyone around. And this all took place in this particular, um, well, it, it was in response to this judgment going on in this locale called Jezreel. It was a place of slaughter. It was a, a place of violence. It was a place of death. And so every time they met this adorable little boy, oh, you're Hosea's boy. And what was your name? Jezreel. Jezreel? Did you say that? <sighs> Naming a little boy in Chicago, you know. Valentine's Day Massacre, you know. How about a little name called Massacre? Slaughter. Wow, that's an ugly word. But that's what he said. And look at why. Call his name Jezreel for just a little while. I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow. And the bow is a representative of the armies of Israel. I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. It was a, a message of judgment. We already know why they were going to be judged. By the fact that he had married an unfaithful wife. And that unfaithful wife was Israel. And now we know what the punishment is here, this discipline, Jezreel. Wow. Well, he didn't have just little sweet uh, Jezreel as a little boy. If you notice verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. Now commentators notice that she conceived again. doesn't say to him, perhaps this child was a child of unfaithfulness. You get to chapter 2, and it really gets icky. I'll tell you, you know, you should be at least 13 years old to read that stuff. It's, it's pretty icky, you know. It's some nasty thoughts of what's going on there. You know, Hosea eventually has to go buy his wife back in a slave market because of her unfaithfulness, chasing out after lovers. It is a deplorable picture of unfaithfulness to God. And so if you want to see how God looks at unfaithfulness, about this neglect that is ongoing, this is the way he sees it. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Well, verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, 
call her name, no mercy. Not only because of your faithfulness am I going to destroy this army and take captive this city, I will show no mercy in doing it. No mercy. It's a sad thing. Child running around with the name of no mercy, but all of it an illustration about how God feels about the unfaithful, those who turn their back against him and walk away. Unusual person of faith. God, isn't it enough that I just tell him? Can I name him Chuck or after my uncle Hezekiah or something? Now, there's the names. Everyone that meets them will be reminded of my message. Because of your unfaithfulness, the hand of discipline will be severe. So she conceived again and bore a daughter. Yahweh said, call her name no mercy, for I will, have, I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So that doesn't sound like God, does it? Or does it? Do you remember in the book of Numbers, 13 spies go into the land to see this land of promise that's flowing with milk and honey. It is rich. It is a wonderful place. You remember how 10 of those spies came back and said, oh, nope, we can't do it. I mean, they're big and they're really big. Did I mention how big these people are? I mean, we look like grasshoppers. We can't do it. Mm -mm, let's go back to Egypt. But two spies says, if God said it, we can do it. People of faith, a guy named Joshua and a guy named Caleb. But the whole nation, they listen to these 10 spies and says, oh, no, I'm afraid. No scary stories. It'll be too hard. And God told this generation that you will be in this wilderness for 40 years until every one of this generation is dead. You see, it seems that God takes sin a lot more serious than we do. They would not believe, and they would not enter into the promise. They would not. And what was the issue? The issue was faith. So God is a God who is a merciful God, repent. The very fact of God sending a prophet means it's the last thing he wants to do. Remember, God sent Jonah. Jonah was not willing, you may recall. You know, great story, big fish and all, vomiting up on the shore. And he ultimately went and preached a message he didn't want to preach. He wanted those people to be judged. He wanted God to destroy this violent city. And lo and behold, they repented. I mean, what's the point of sending a prophet if there isn't going to be repentance somewhere? And they did. When God sends a prophet to announce judgment, judgment is the last thing God wants to do. Otherwise, why wouldn't he just do it? Forget the prophet altogether. Skip the middleman and just judge him. But he sent a prophet in case there might be one Maybe two, five or six perhaps, who would hear and act on it, trust him, and repent. 
So here she is, little girl named no mercy. But look at here, verse 7. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by Yahweh their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Nobody will be able to think it was by their strength when I do it. Remember, Judah, line of David, covenant of God, only Judah. Hmm. In verse 8 here, we find a son, three kids. It's a good number. Four is better. Four? I have four kids if you didn't know that. All right, now I'm teasing. Whatever you got is great to you. When she had weaned, no mercy. She conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, oh, one more, really? (laughs) Call his name, not my people. Wow. He said to his people, not my people. How do you know? Well, look at the way they live. God's people don't live that way. That's why he sent a prophet. Change it up. Prove who you are by the way you live. Not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. I can't think of a stronger statement against sin than these statements here. Now recall that we're not talking about the church. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. The church didn't become the new Israel. The church is the church, separate and distinct. God still has a plan for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, the Spirit of God was given every once in a while to particular people for particular purposes, and it was temporary. But you and I as believers in Jesus, we have the Spirit of God as a, as a promise as an engagement ring of the rewards of the blessings to come, the inheritance that God has for us. It is a permanent indwelling. The Spirit of God will not leave you and come back. That is the promise of God for a forgiven son of God, a child of God. Not so with the nation of Israel. So do not be afraid that one day God will call you not your, not his children, and he will not be your God. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, I didn't say if you said a prayer, if you walked an aisle, if you said, Lord, this time I'm really going to try and be good. I'm talking about trusting in his promises. Who are you trusting today? Then you have the spirit of God in you which is, as the Scripture says, a guarantee of the inheritance to come. Wow. Not my people. No mercy had been weaned. She conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call him not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Pretty heavy message here, eh? God is serious about sin. Friends, you and I ought to be the same. We ought not to condone it. We certainly ought not to participate in it. And perhaps this would be a good time if you're feeling a little pushed into and poked at a little bit. And there's that little thing the Spirit of God is bringing up in your own mind. Maybe now's a good time to repent of that. 
Repent means a turn, a change. It doesn't mean I'm sorry. It means I acknowledge it. I understand it exactly the way God does. It is death. It is a cancer in my life. And out it must go. Out it must go. Today would be a good day to deal with that, wouldn't it? It would be an offense to God today. Presuming that just because you show up on a Sunday, that makes everything okay. It doesn't work in a relationship with your spouse or with your children. It certainly doesn't work with God. A little good thing here and there does not make up for a life of rebellion and ignoring and neglection. My friends, you know, by the way, this is exactly what we would expect of God. And it shows up in every chapter. Look at verse 10. God tells Hosea, don't forget to mention this, by the way. Yet, and there's the word. Think about it. We have seen nothing but darkness. I'm done with these people. Every last one of them, they are rebellious, unfaithful, sinful people. Yet, the number of the children of Israel Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Well, how's that possible, God, if you're done with them? Now, this is about discipline. This is about disciplining a nation. God not only only took them into captivity, he brought them out of captivity. God had made a covenant in which he would not change his mind. God said, I will bless this nation. And ultimately, through this nation, bring blessing through the rest of the world. It's Genesis chapter 12. Yet the numbers of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. He reminds them of God's covenant, exactly what God had told Abraham. I don't have any kids. Yeah, but the number of these people are going to be like the sands of the seashore and of the stars in the sky, if you could number them. Chapter 15 of Genesis. And he reminds them of a restored relationship. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. How's it going to happen? 70 years. And you know what happened in those 70 years? God changed the heart of a people. He told them to seek the good of the city in which they were in exile. He told them to have children, to raise them, to love them, that their number may not diminish in this time because God had a future for this nation. And when they came out, remember those Pharisees walking around counting people's steps on the Sabbath and looking out for people's sin? A little bit of a different attitude about sin in the nation. A little overboard, no doubt about that. But never among Israel was it accounted to them that they committed adultery after that. There were no, no more idols, no more chasing after other gods. Seems the discipline worked. And God brought them back. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. 
The God who brings discipline is also the God who restores. So friends, as we picture God and his sternness about sin, we must also see him with open arms inviting restoration. Come back. Come back to God today.